0: Sessions that we have together is to give you a kind of survey, if I can do it, of the Bible's teaching concerning man, by which I mean humanity, men and women. The Bible's doctrine of man, as it used to be called, or the now nowadays we're a bit scared of using the word man because it refers to only seems to refer to only half of the human race. But um, the Bible's teaching concerning humanity or the human race. For many years of my life, I've spent my time expounding books of the Bible, some, some of which are there, and uh, I preached in one way or another through every book of the Bible over the years. But uh, latterly, in, in recent years, I've been doing something a little bit different, and that is trying to come to some, clu- some, to some co- conclusions. Christian doctrine is what you believe after a lot of Bible study you read your Bible and read your Bible and read your Bible then you ask yourself the question well what do I believe now now I've read my Bible so many times or I've been through so many books of the Bible uh, what do you believe now what's the kind of end product of it all and that's, that's your doctrine that's your systematic theology if, if you want to use that term and so over recent years I've often taken areas of doctrine in fact in South Africa there's a big fat book half a million words called what's um, called what's it called the Purpose and Plan of God, which is a kind of systematic theology, although you won't have seen it in Britain, see it's in South Africa. But um, it's that kind of thing that I've been doing a lot in recent years. So tonight, and over the next couple of days, I want to share with you a kind of survey, as much, as much as I can do it, a survey of the Bible's teaching concerning the human race. The Bible's teaching about man. When you're going through the whole plan of God, you would begin, I think, with God. And then you would go on to creation. But then the next thing you'd go on to is surely the doctrine of man. God created man as the climax of creation, as, as I shall try to show you. So that's the thing that I want us especially to focus on. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn with me to Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is the uh, thing that puts this very s- clearly and strikingly. Psalm 8, oh, I see a... Amplification has come on. That's nice. Psalm eight. Let me begin. No, let's read the whole psalm. Psalm eight. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? That's a little bit too high. Turn it. Turn it down a bit. It's a bit too high at the moment. Just turn it down a little bit. It's Nice to have a little bit of amplification, but not too much. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him You have made him for a little while. I think that's the best translation, not a little, but for a little while. You have made him for a little while lower than the heavenly beings, the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas." O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Later on, I'll refer also to Hebrews chapter 2, which which refers to this psalm and and quotes it. I, I won't read it now. So, I choose this passage to start with because it's the passage, more than anything else in the Bible, that tells us what God's plan is for the human race. The human race has a destiny, God has always had a plan for the human race. Um, Psalm 8 is the place where, more than anywhere else, I think, in the Bible, it tells us what the purpose of God is for the human race. It's one of a group of psalms, I'm not here to preach on psalms, but uh, if I were, I would uh, try to introduce you to the idea that the book of Psalms is brilliantly edited. It's something you won't find in the commentaries or in the normal expositions and books on Psalms. I hold the view that Psalms is brilliantly edited, that the person who put it together, put it together very skillfully. You can actually trace a line of thought all the way through the book of Psalms. And uh, they come in little chunks and little sections, each making a certain point. Psalms 1 and 2 are a kind of introduction to the whole book of Psalms. You'll notice it begins and it ends with the thought of blessedness. Psalm one blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked. Psalm 2.12 at the end, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. It begins and ends with the thought of blessedness. And so Psalm 1 tells you how blessed it is individually. Psalm 2 tells you how blessed it is corporately and internationally. It's a kind of introduction to the Psalms. It's all about blessedness. And then Psalms, I would say that Psalms 3 to 8 is a kind of group of Psalms. So they all have the same theme. And they're all about David being in trouble. Psalm 3 says that the Psalm was written, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And uh, all of the Psalms from 3 to 9, 3 to 8, are about David running away from enemies. The first one was Absalom. Absalom tried to take over his kingdom. and David was removed from his throne and he had to run for his life from his own son. And while he's running from these various enemies and there are others, all of these psalms have the same theme. While he's running away, he's praying. And he's praying early in the morning. You'll find many references to early in the morning in these psalms. And he's praying late at night. You'll find many references to the middle of the night in these psalms. So here he is running away for his life. All of these psalms are about the same theme. He's running away from from his life, escaping his enemies. But he gets up early in the morning to pray and when he goes to bed at night, he prays all about morning and evening prayers. And so this one is taking place in the middle of the night and he's camping out in the bush, running from his enemies. Uh, That's why it mentions in verse 2 the enemy and the avenger. That's one of the themes of these psalms. And so here he is running away from his enemies in the middle of the night. He he believes he'll get his kingdom back, but he's not getting it back just yet. And as he's doing this, he's praying. So in the middle of the night, he looks up at the sky. He's amazed at this creation. He's out in the bush somewhere, and he looks up into the the nighttime sky. It's nighttime. Notice Notice he doesn't mention the sun. When I see the moon and the stars, he doesn't mention the sun. It's nighttime. He looks up at the sky in the middle of the night, and he says to himself, well, this amazing creation is here, and uh, he's in trouble himself. But he's looking to the sovereignty of God. But uh, as he does this, he says, "Well, creation is so great, but the greatest part of it is the human race." When I look up at the su- uh, not the sun, but the moon and the stars, and I think of what a, an amazing creation I'm in, I then say, "What, what is man? The, the greatest thing in this creation." is the human race. What is man that you should be mindful of him? And what is the son of man? What is any particular person within the human race that you care for him? And then he starts talking about the destiny of man. You have made him for a little while lower than the heavenly beings or the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honour. It's, it's actually talking about God's plan, Very often in the Hebrew language, you put something in the past tense when it's a a plan or an intention. greatest example is Isaiah 53, when you have that description of the cross of Jesus, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned each one to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It's a prophecy. You may say, why is it in the past tense if it's a prophecy? Well, it's, it's a Hebrew way of saying things. It's as good as done. You get it in Romans 8.28, those who will be justified, he has glorified. we were in heaven already, it's as good as done. It's a way of speaking of something which is certain and a a plan which is going to come to pass. So he says, you have exalted the human race. It's it's not actually happening yet, but it's God's plan for the human race. You have made him for a little while lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. Everything I see, says David, looking around at the whole of creation, you've made man to be the Lord of everything. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, the animals on planet Earth, the birds of the heaven. He looks around, he looks up, he looks down at the sea, every possible area. You've made, you put man over the whole of the cosmos. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So it's a meditation as he's gazing up at the stars in the nighttime of how the human race is destined to be the Lord of everything you see in the universe. He looks up at the stars, he looks around at the animals that are out there in the middle of the night. He thinks of things that are somewhat below the land in the sea. He thinks of the birds of the air. He thinks of every realm there is, up and around and down. And says, you put man over the whole lot. That's your plan for the human race. And he stops there. Now Hebrews, if I can jump from there to Hebrews. Hebrews quotes this psalm. When Hebrews is speaking of Jesus and how Jesus is the last word from God, it's, and he's going to give us heavenly glory it quotes this psalm let me read now from hebrews chapter 2 it was not to angels that god subjected the world to come of which we are speaking it has been testified and he quotes the psalm what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him you made him for a little while the esv gets the translation right there you made him for a little while lower than the angels who crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. It's the same psalm which which he's quoting from Psalm 8. But he makes two comments on it. Hebrews makes two comments on the psalm. Comment number one. In putting everything in subjection under him, he left nothing out of his control. He's put the entire universe under the human race. He left nothing outside his control. But, here's his comment, but at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. His first comment is, well, here it is in the psalm, that the entire universe is put under the lordship of man, by which we mean men and women, the human race. The entire universe is put under the lordship of the human race. But, says the writer to the Hebrews, but we do not yet see it happening. We don't see all things put under the human race. Man can't even have dominion over himself, let alone over the entire human race. He is not the king of creation. He's in sin, he's in wickedness. You can look around our world or read the newspaper or watch TV and you see what a mess the human race is in. Not, what terrible things that go on in our world. It would be quite, but to give you a list of them, it would be highly depressing and you wish you hadn't come. I mean, the things going on in our world are awful. And uh, Ant will tell you I've been sitting around getting emails all day while, he's, while we've been having supper tonight. But, but they there people were trying to in Kenya. People were trying to commit suicide. One girl who got AIDS and wouldn't take any medicine because she wanted to die anyway. She just died. There's a funeral going on in Kenya at the moment. Uh, these things that happen in the human race, and it yet here's the Psalmist saying, "All all things are under the dominion of man. Man is the Lord of creation. He's ruling himself. He's ruling everything around him." Hebrew says, "We do, we don't yet see all these things under the human race. We see it in the Psalm being predicted, but we're not actually seeing it happen." That's comment number one. Comment number two, he says, but we do see Jesus. And we see him, Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And we see him, Jesus. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, God rewarded him because of his death, we see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every, everyone. Now, you see you see what he's saying. We don't see this happening in the human race, but we do see it happening in Jesus. We find Jesus coming down and becoming a man. And for, for, for a moment being lower than the angels. Jesus... When he came into this world, he came as a weak man. He didn't come in power and glory when he was born. He was born as a baby. He, could, he, could, he was weak. He could be tired. He could be hungry. He could die. He, he comes down lower than the angels. He becomes one of us with all the sort of human problems that we have, except sin. He didn't come as a sinner. But apart from sin, he's got all the weaknesses and all the problems that we have. We see him coming down and for a little while being made lower than the angels. But we see him so obeying the Lord even to the point of death that the Father exalts him and crowns him with glory and honour. We, we don't see ourselves fulfilling Psalms, but we do see him fulfilling Psalms. Now, here is what I'm saying. I'm not just trying to expound Scripture in, in great detail. I'm trying to summarise the results of it, it, it with, with respect to the teaching about man. Uh, the teaching is, you see that the human race was destined for glory and honour. The human race was destined for lordship. The the human race was destined to be the king of creation. But we don't see it happening. And the reason why it it does not happen is because of sin. Something came in 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 the story of Genesis and in the story of the Bible, something comes in and, and it ruins the destiny of man. So even though that was God's purpose, that's what was, is on God's mind, that's what he's done in his own thinking, it's in the past tense, he's, he's as good as done it. But it's not actually happened yet, but it's in his plan, it's as good as done in God's mind. But something happened which, which stopped it from being fulfilled. And it's the Bible's teaching about the fall and sin, maybe we'll get to that tomorrow sometime. But it's the Bible's teaching about the fall and the Ruin of the human man. Humankind lost its destiny. Humankind sinned. We were meant to be, as it were, under test. When God created the human race, he put man in the Garden of Eden, or whatever that story means. Maybe it's a little bit parabolic, not completely. It's historical, but maybe it's a little bit parabolic. God put man in the Garden of Eden, and he puts man under one command. Don't eat of that tree in the midst of the garden. In the day you eat of that, you will surely die. He's under one command. And so man, remember the name Adam means the man. And often in Genesis it's the man. God put the man in the garden. He puts the human race in the person of Adam in that paradise and he gives him one command. There's only one thing that he has to do to be obedient and that's to keep that one command. But God says to him, If you if you fail the test, if you don't pass the test of obedience, and you don't keep that one command I put you under, you shall surely die. Both physically, spiritually, you'll be put out of the garden, you'll lose fellowship, you'll die spiritually, and eventually you'll die physically. Death will come into the world because of sin. And so mankind is, is under test in that Garden of Eden. If mankind or humankind had passed that test, it would have been rewarded and highly exalted. God has got a destiny for the human race to be highly exalted and become the king of the universe. But it's upon condition of obedience, it's upon condition that the human race obeys the laws. And if the human race in the person of Adam does not obey the Lord, it will lose its destiny and will fall out of the plan of God, at least for the moment. And far from being the Lord of creation, won't even be the Lord of himself. We do not yet see all things under him. He can't even be the Lord of his own realm, let alone the, the wider universe. And so Adam and Eve and the human race in the person of Adam and Eve lose their destiny. So Hebrew says, we, we, don't, we don't see this happening. But we do see it happening through Jesus. And if you follow Hebrews, Hebrews will go on to say that through Jesus, people become the children of God. They become sons and daughters of God. And Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. He is, He's got their first He's fulfilled the human destiny. He's done what Adam did not do. He's become a second Adam. He also came under test. As soon as he came into the world, Satan attacked him. Just as soon as Adam came into the world, Satan attacked Adam. Similarly with Jesus, the first thing that ever happened, he went out into the wilderness and Satan threw everything he possibly could at Jesus. Only Jesus passed the test. He did not sin. He carried on being obedient, even obedient to the point of death. And therefore, says the Bible, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. The name of Jesus, the human name, Jesus, the name name he got when he was born as a baby. The name of Jesus, the name that he was given as a little newborn child, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what, that's what God was offering to the human race, lordship. But men and women lost their lordship. They came under failure and defeat and sin and wickedness and the calamities that came into our world. But at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, the teaching is that Jesus fulfilled our destiny. That Jesus got to where we were meant to get. And so the only way for us to fulfill our destiny now is to be taken there by Jesus. To be, to be in Christ. And let Jesus bring us to the destiny that we lost and so fulfill Psalm 8 after all. The psalm that you'll think never will be fulfilled, it does get fulfilled by our putting our faith in Jesus, and Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. I have a way of preaching it, which I, doesn't fit England very much, but I have a way of preaching it when I'm in Mumbai. Sometimes I preach this in Mumbai. And here's how I preach it in Mumbai. You know, Mumbai is a terrifying city about 20 million people in this, half of them living on the streets. And uh, if you're living a couple of thousand miles away in, in uh, Calcutta or somewhere, and you want some job in Mumbai, it's a bit scary. M- moving into the, eight, the 18, 20 million city, half of them living on the streets and trying to get a job and sort of make your way, that's a bit scary. But Indian families do it a lot. They, they send their kids to the, the big capital to make their way in life. But what they do is, they send the, big, the oldest brother first. The senior <laughs> brother of the family goes. And he goes to Mumbai and he suffers and battles living on the streets, camping on the streets, no, how, people, everyone's living in tin shacks, it's poverty-stricken, but somehow he survives. And somehow he gets a job. And somehow he begins to make his way in life. And he's doing a bit better than he he was when he was back home living out in the bush somewhere. And finally he's he's settled. He's in Mumbai and he's managing to make himself a living. He's in the big capital city. And then this is what he does. He then says to all of the rest of the family, I've made it, I've made it, I'm here, I'm here in Mumbai. Now, come and join me. And one at a time, all of the children move to Mumbai. He's paved the way. Now he says, now, I want to bring all of my brothers, I'm going to bring all of my sisters. The first woman gets to Mumbai first and survives and makes her way. And then he brings all of his brothers after him. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus gets to the heavenly glory. And he's the first of many brethren. And he's not ashamed to call us brothers. And he says, now, I've got myself to glory. Now I can get you to glory. Now, follow me. Come with me. I'm bringing many sons. I'm bringing all of my brothers. I'm not ashamed to call you brothers. Hebrews chapter 2. I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers. I'm bringing you all to the heavenly city where I've got to. You're following after me. And I got there first. I'll bring you along. And you will fulfill your destiny. You'll get to this position of lordship and sovereignty. And wealth—I don't mean money, but, but spiritual wealth, wealth in the kingdom of God. That's the destiny of the human race. We were meant to be lords and kings of creation. We begin by being lords over ourselves. First person, the first area of life that we have to conquer and be in control of is, is ourselves. Adam and Eve—they were meant to be trusting in God and God's word, and God was a, about to highly exalt them. God was about to give them a name and a position of lordship in the, in the universe. But they sinned, and so they lost it. And so Jesus came down, and he took their place. He became a human being. He became, says the Bible, he became a second Adam. He became another head of the human race. Adam was the kind of head of the human race. Incidentally, if I can uh, digress a little bit, have you noticed how scientists are getting nearer and nearer to believing in Adam and Eve? Have you noticed that? If I may digress a little bit. When the theory of evolution came along in, when was it, 1859, when the theory of evolution came along and Darwin got going, He didn't believe in one human race. The human evolution was meant to be producing ape-like creatures all over the place and various races were meant to be coming into being. And up until about the 1930s, when you read the books, they talk a lot about races. Churchill used to talk a lot about the British race as as opposed to Hitler and all that lot. There's no other race. Or the dark races. You used to hear those phrases up until about the 1930s. And so nobody ever believed in one human race. Evolution produced all these monkeys and and animal. And human beings came out of it somewhere. And so the human races came into being. They did not believe in a human race. They believed in human races. And often people would have an idea of superior races. That's where Hitler comes in. Evolution had a lot to do with Hitler. That's where apartheid came in. I, I remember once lecturing in a theological college in Johannesburg lecturing on Genesis, the Hebrew text of Genesis. And there was a student there who kept on asking me questions. He kept on interrupting the class, and and he was disturbing the class a lot. Now, he obviously had some problem. And I couldn't quite see what his problem was. This, This was apartheid, Johannesburg. And then finally, I realized what his problem was. As I was just lecturing on the Hebrew text of Genesis, he could see that I was implying that every single person comes from Adam, including African people down the road. And he was deeply entrenched in apartheid, and the thought that he and his black neighbors down the road came from the same person, he could not take that. He was in trouble over that. You see, apartheid, uh, uh, effect earlier... Uh, Affected by evolutionism, literally thought that there were different races, and that the black race and the white race didn't have the same origin. This poor guy listening to my lectures was—I was, was overthrowing his entire culture by, by by tracing everybody back to Adam. Same thing is true of the Rwanda crisis when the Rwanda genocide took place many years ago. Did you know that back in the '30s, Westerners taught taught people that the Tutsi tribe of Rwanda were a kind of superior race. They didn't even think they came from Africa. They said they must, must have moved in somewhere from some, from some place. They were a kind of superior race. Then in the 1950s, the Western world got very entranced with communism. There were communist ghettos all over the place. And uh, communist cells in Oxford and Cambridge. And suddenly, the Western world started telling people that the people are really the most important ones. They should have rebelled against all these uh, bourgeois people ruling them. They should overthrow the rich and the work- workers of the world unite. What happens when you spend 20 years telling one tribe that they're elite and then you spend another t- another 20 years telling the other tribe that they're elite? The answer is genocide. Sooner or later, the... The race that net, the the, uh, the people or race, if you think in evolutionary terms, will as it were rise up against the elite and start slaughtering them. That, that's what caused the crisis in in Rwanda. The, the West spent years teaching the Tutsis that they were superior, then changed their minds and spent years telling the, the Hutus that they were superior, and it, it led to genocide. But here's the thing: all of that is gone, and what's made it go? is the discovery of DNA. DNA, I can't even pronounce what it stands for, but DNA proves more than anything there ever could be that there's only one human race. And by DNA, you could now track down where populations come from all over the place. And uh, scientists uh, are working hard at where all the different peoples of the world are coming from and going to with some surprising results. No, no evolutionist today believes that there's any more than one race. And that leads to a question. If the human race really is only one human race, well then, population now, was it? Uh, 8 billion or something? What was it 20 years ago? So 6 billion? 5 years? 5, five billion? 4 billion? What was it in 1st century AD? Less, less than 1 billion? What was it in 10,000 BC? You go back and back and back. You go back to sort of, 20,000 BC, only a few thousand people around. Uh, and then back for. Eventually, you're going to get to two. You keep on going back and back and back, asking where the human race comes from. And if you go onto internet and start uh, browsing a little bit over Google, you'll find that scientists are asking the question, where is the most recent woman from whom every member of the human race descends? And where is the, the, the nearest man from whom every member of our current race descends? And do you know they're beginning to use the word Adam and Eve? They're, you actually find them talking about monochondrial Eve. You find it on the internet. They're actually using words like Adam and Eve. It's only a matter of time before scientists start saying, actually, we all come from two. That's going to happen. We're going that way quite fast. Don't be bothered about evolution. Someone someone tells you that they believe in theory of evolution, look them in the eye and say, who steered the evolution? Because the very story of evolution, if you believe in it, I'm not saying saying I do, but if you do, the very story of evolution, it it takes you back and back and back, and finally you're going to get to two. That's the way science is going. There's only one human race, and the number from whom we all descend gets smaller and smaller and smaller as you go back in history, sooner or later, you're going to get to two. It's only a question of time before scientists start talking about Adam and Eve and they're already beginning to do it. Well, I say all that to say that when God made the human race, he created Adam and Eve. There may be some parabolic elements there, I I agree with that. But um, he made the human race and he gave the human race a destiny. That they were under test, a test of obedience if they, if they passed that test, they would be crowned with glory and honour. If they did not pass that test, they would lose something, they would lose their privileges, and that's what happened. They did not pass the test, they failed, and we do not yet see all things under him. But God sent a second Adam. And if you will put your faith in this second Adam, his job is to work in us, to get us to be obedient and to produce a people who will be serving the Lord and to bring the human race to the point where it will be crowned with glory and honour. That is what the human race is here for. And that's our view of man. And I'll try to develop this over the next day or so, but we need to challenge the world as as to who and what man is. If you follow the current theories of evolution and so on, and you, you want evolution to, to be the total explanation from A to Z. No, 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 God comes into it. It's purely the evolution of some kind of animal. And we're just a kind of complicated monkey. We're just a kind of complicated chimpanzee. If you think you're a complicated chimpanzee, you will live like a complicated chimpanzee. If you think you're just an animal, you will live like an animal. If you think you're just going to die when you die like like some monkey in the tree, and, and you're, just a, you're a bit clever, a bit more evolved, but that's all it is. Nin, 90, 90, is it 93% of a chimpanzee chromosomes the same as ours. If you, if you just believe that's the total story, nothing else, man's just a kind of complicated animal. You don't really believe in the soul. You don't really believe there's any aspect of man which, which, which goes beyond the grave. If you believe that, you'll live that way. You'll just regard yourself as an animal, it's hard, to, it's hard to have any notion that there's such a thing as sin. You won't have any idea that there's such a thing as conscience. Animals don't have conscience as far as we know. You, you'll, you'll treat yourself as just something which when life comes to the end, that's it, you're just dead. You're just, you're just a, a creature. But we need to, as it were, challenge the, the world in which we live as to what they believe about themselves. Sin degrades, if you if you regard yourself as just a a kind of mechanism, uh, just body and not, not much more, it, it degrades you, it pulls you down, and you start living just for physical pleasure, you live for sex or drugs or booze or whatever it is. Uh, there's no such thing really as right or wrong, it's just a complicated animal. You, you degrade yourself. No, no, we need to believe that we are made here As the image of God. I'll come to that in the next session. We are here as the image of God. We'll come to that. And we were designed and created for a purpose. And the purpose is lordship and sovereignty that we rule over our universe on behalf of God. God hands the universe over to the human race. And he says, I'm putting this world I've created, I've put put it under you. I've designed everything for you. Another thing that the scientists are discovering, have you, have you heard about the anthropic principle? you, you know that, that phrase mean anything to you? The anthropic principle, do you know about that? It's the principle that scientists are discovering, discovering that every single thing about the world which we, we live in, the whole universe, seems to be designed for man, especially planet Earth. If gravity were a tiny bit more or a tiny bit less, we couldn't survive. If the mixture of oxygen and nitrogen in the air were a tiny bit different one way or the other, we couldn't survive. If the quantity of water and earth in our, in our planet were different, we couldn't survive. Every single thing is tailor-made. Scientists are seeing it. They're seeing our world is, is perfect for, for us and for nothing else. Even our position in the galaxy. Have you ever seen where our universe is in the galaxy? It's in a very weird position. You see a picture of the Milky Way, and there's the Earth stuck out on the, on the fringe somewhere, and you think, what, what, on Earth you, what on Earth is the world doing out there somewhere? The scientists are increasingly saying it's the only position in our galaxy where we could see everything. If we were in the middle, there'd be so much light, we wouldn't even know there's anything out there. It would be nothing but blazing lights. If we were in another point, it would be total darkness. The position we are in is the perfect position for us to look out and see our universe. We couldn't even do it if we were anywhere else. Even our position in the universe enables us to study our universe. In the other position, we couldn't do it. Everything about the human person is perfectly designed... And it's perplexing the scientists. They're they, 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 they sort of wondering how it can be. And they call it the anthropic principle, the principle that, that the benefit of the human race is built into our universe. Well, we could have told, told it to them before they discovered this. It. It's here in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, God makes the heavens and the earth, and the earth is without form and it's void. It is shapeless without form, and it's void, it's empty. Why, why does God make the world in two stages. First of all, just the stuff, But it's shapeless and formless, it's got no kind of structure to it, and it's empty. Then he shapes it. The days of creation are God's shaping the world it's already made that had no form or, or content in it. Why does the Bible put it that way? Because the shaping is designing it for us. It's liquid, so God makes land. We're not fishes, we need some land, so God makes the land. We need to tell the time. So God put stars and moons and, and the sun in the sky for seasons and for, and for signs. Whose seasons? Who's, who's the guy who wants to know the seasons of the universe? When, when is the year? When is the day? When is the month? Who's the guy that needs the, the signs and the seasons? The human race. Even the sun and the moon and the stars are put there for us to tell the time. That's what Genesis says. Everything is designed for us. And the food and the mixture of of all the elements in our world, the Genesis. It's all there for the human race. And then God says, I'm making man as my image and let them have dominion. Let them have lordship. That's the destiny of the human race. We lost it because of sin. We get it back through Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, he's got there already. He's got to the heavenly Mumbai, only it's a little bit nicer than Mumbai. He's got to the heavenly city. He's there already. He's there in the final glory. Now, he's bringing many sons to glory. You put your faith in Jesus and he starts making you kings and lords and princes. You begin to be king over yourself. You overcome to him who overcomes. The book of Revelation is always saying, to him who overcomes, to him who conquers. You start conquering things. You conquer yourself. You conquer sin. You conquer Satan. You begin to conquer everything. You're getting your lordship back. And Hebrews says, this world to come. Oh, it's not for the angels. It's not for the angels. The final glory is not that we should be spiritual beings floating around in space playing some sort of heavenly guitar. The final glory is a new heavens, a new earth. It's a nice way of thinking about heaven. Don't think of heaven as being some ethereal world out there somewhere. Think of heaven as heaven on earth. Think of the final glory as this world glorified. Everything that's good about our world is going to be glorified. And, and the people of God will be the kings and the lords and the rulers of a world to come, a world to come, whereof we speak. It's not for the angels, says, says Hebrews, it's for the seed of Abraham. It's those who put their faith in God as Abraham did. That's the destiny. That's the purpose of the human race. And when you get saved, that's what you're coming into. A saviour who's making you lords and kings, beginning with yourself. You begin to be the king and lord of yourself. You're in control of yourself. You conquer things all around. To him who conquers, says the book of Revelation, to him who overcomes, I'll give this and this and this. And a new heaven, and a new earth comes into being, of which we are the kings and the lords and the sovereigns With Jesus, under Jesus. He shares his kingship with his people. And we reign and rule with Christ in a world to come. And we begin now, we begin now, immediately you believe in Jesus. You begin to be lords and kings over yourself. All things are yours, says says 1 Corinthians. All things are yours, life or death, things present, things to come. All things are yours, because you are Christ's. And Christ is God. You get your dominion back. You get your lordship back through the kingship of Jesus.